You are listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you'd turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 22 is where we're going to be today. Hebrews 7, 11 through 22. As you're turning there, say it with me. We want to know Jesus better. We want to love Jesus more. We want to serve Jesus greater. Uh, Who doesn't love a good guarantee? When you're going to buy something, you're going to purchase um, uh, something for your home or maybe even a, a trip or whatever the case may be, we, we get enticed into buying things when people can offer us a good guarantee, don't we? 100, 100% satisfied or your money back. Promise you, guarantee that this will change your life, this experience, this product, whatever the case may be. Because when we purchase something that has a guarantee to it, that gives us security. It gives us confidence. It gives us a hope, right? That if it comes with a guarantee, then we know it's going to deliver on its promises. And today, when we get towards the end of this passage, into into verse 22, what we're going to see is that Jesus becomes the guarantee of all that God has promised. Everything hinges on him. Everything revolves around him. Everything is empowered by him. Everything is fulfilled by him. He becomes that guarantee for us that God is going to do what God has said he's going to do. So let's read it and get into it. Hebrews 7, 11 through 22. You can follow along with me if you will. He writes, Now if perfection had been attainable... Through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken, which is Jesus belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who's become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn, will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. If you grabbed a bulletin today, you've got some bulletin notes in there to to walk you through as we go through today. And if not, I'll try to make them evident for you if you're just taking your own notes today. But this message is titled, A Better Hope, A Better Covenant. 
And we begin by looking at verses 11 through 19, and the first part of verse 19 at least, and look at what this is described to us as the insufficiency or the insufficient nature or power of the law. The word is used in verse 11. It's also a word that's used again in, excuse me, uh, it's also used the word again in in verse 19. Perfection is the word used in verse 11. Perfect is the word used there in verse 19, but they're essentially the same word. And it's telling us that through the law, through the priesthood, perfection was not attainable. Therefore, there needed to have arisen another priest. Uh, There are times when our English translations kind of miss the mark a little bit. This is one of those times, I think, because when we tend to think of perfection, we tend to think of something as without mistake. Uh, So someone who, a pitcher who throws a perfect game or someone who, who bowls a perfect game of 300, they do that without a mistake. The word perfection and perfect here in verse 19 uh, is really a word that tends to think about completion or fulfillment. It has to do with a task or a mission or, or something that is at hand that gets done all the way to the end as it was supposed to. So let me give you an example. In Luke chapter 1, Mary visits Elizabeth, beginning in verse 39, and, and we know that story, or you may know that story, the, the baby leaps in the womb, and Elizabeth begins to cry out to Mary about all the blessings, and she says in verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment a completion, a perfection of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so this idea of perfection, completement, fulfillment is this idea of the task that was at hand getting completed. And so what was the task of the Old Testament law? What was the task of the Old Testament priesthood? Well, the law pointed us, pointed Israel, points us today to God's holy standard of living. It points us to what he expects, what he demands, what what is needed for us to draw near to him. And then the priesthood then, in the Old Testament specifically, existed almost as a mediator, if you will, to connect man who could not live up to all of that expectation, who could not live up to all of that law, to connect that man with that holy God through sacrifice. And so completion or perfection really also ties not only into fulfillment, but into access. It ties into access. And at best, the law and the the sacrificial system and the Old Testament priesthood, at best, all it could do was remind the people of just how far away they were from God. I mean, just imagine for a moment in my life and your life, if we were still under such a system that in both daily and weekly situations and even in a a once a year situation on what was called the Day of Atonement, we had to offer sacrifices for your life and for mine. That would be a constant reminder of our insufficiency before God. Now, in saying that this is what the law did, what the priesthood did, what that system did, we're not saying that God somehow made a mistake with that. We're not suggesting that God messed up by giving that first and then bringing us Jesus later. Because the problem is not the law. 
The problem is us. The problem was not God's holy standards or the giving of the holy standards. The the difficulty, the problem, the failure to bring it to completion and to have that access with God that we so desperately need and have to have, the problem was with us. Uh, I'm going to read three sections out of Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation in this because I want it to be crystal clear. I want it to be perfectly clear what Paul is talking. Paul is talking in Romans 7 and Romans 8, and he's talking about the issue of the law and and comparing it to what Christ does with us and so forth. And listen to what he says first in Romans 7, verse 7. Am I suggesting the law of God was sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would have never known coveting was wrong if the law had not said to me, do not covet. Listen to what he says in chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. Still, the law itself is holy. Its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. And we see how terrible sin really is. It used God's good commands for its evil purpose. So the trouble is not with the law, he writes. It's spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. And then Romans 8, 1 through 3. So now there's no condemnation for those of you who belong to Christ Jesus because you belong to him. The power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. And listen to this. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declares an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Paul says the the problem is not the law. The problem is not God's holy standard. The problem is us. And that we can never meet that standard on our own. Uh, imagine if you go on a vacation this summer. Some of you have already been. But imagine you go on a vacation this summer and you see a sign on the beach that says, No swimming sharks present. Or, or maybe no, no swimming jellyfish present. And you ignore the sign and you go on in and you get bitten or stung. Is that the sign's fault? No. It's ours for disobeying the sign, for disregarding the sign, for doing what we want to do in spite of what the sign says to us. Do the sharks and the jellyfish read the sign and go, well, no, we can't swim around here? No. And just as sin paid no attention to the law in terms of of moving away from us because of God's holy standard, We who enter into sin are not paying attention to the law because the problem is not the law, the problem is us. And so the law and the Old Testament priesthood never fully brought people into the presence of God. It merely covered sin. 
And so look at what the argument begins here again in verse 11. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order or the example of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? He goes on to say in verse 12, for there's a change in the priesthood. There's necessarily a change in the law as well. And of course, the change in the priesthood, as he's been explaining to us this, to this point, is that Jesus did not descend from Aaron. Jesus did not descend from the tribe of Levi. He descended from the tribe of Judah. He did not have the high priest given to him, that position given to him because he had it in some heritage line or some familial line. He had it bestowed upon him by God Most High who swore with an oath that this was what's going to happen. And so when there's a change in the priesthood, there necessarily has to be then a change in the law. And I, I, I figured the author here is anticipating an objection that comes up that says, Jesus can't be a high priest because he wasn't a Levite. Jesus can't be the great high priest because he didn't descend from Aaron. And so this is where Melchizedek is so important. I said to you last week, we, why do we study this? Why is Melchizedek entered here? Because he gives the foreshadowing, he gives the type, the reality that there could be a priest who was not appointed by his family line, who was not appointed uh, because he descended from the right person, that there could be a priest who could serve as the priest of the Most High God, which is the way he's described. And that priest was Melchizedek who served as an anticipation of the great high priest, who is Jesus. And he speaks about him again. Psalm 110, if you jump down to verse 17 for just a moment. says, it is a witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He, he is quoted from Psalm 110 here now three times. In chapter 5, verse 6, here in chapter 7, verse 17, and again, he'll quote from, uh, from Psalm 110 in chapter 7, verse 21. And he's using that psalm, that psalm that spoke of a Messiah to come, that's, that psalm that spoke of one who would come from the line of David, that psalm that spoke of one who would be a priest forever, who would forever live to make intercession for those who loved him and followed him, who would forever live to serve those who loved him and followed him and trusted in him. That raised, that answered the objection long before it was raised. He says there again in verse 12, where there's a change in priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. What was the change in the law? It's our second point, that the sufficiency of Jesus took place over the sufficiency of the law and the sacrificial system and the Old Testament priesthood. Really, for the next several weeks, Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 are all going to expand on this. That Jesus and Jesus alone is sufficient for everything that we need, everything that we want, everything that we desire. And most importantly, Jesus and Jesus alone is sufficient to draw us near, to give us access to complete the task of making us one with God. Because of Jesus, he brings a better hope. Look there again, if you will, beginning in verse 19. Actually, go to 18 because it starts there. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. 
But on the other hand, this is the change of the law. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. It's a hope built on Jesus. Not on Jesus plus anything, not on, not on Jesus in addition to anything. It's a hope that's built solely on the work and the person of Jesus. And Hebrews 7, 8, 9, 10 are just going to continue to expand this for us as, we, as we're in them the next few weeks. I don't, I don't know how many of you really keep up with things in Southern Baptist life, like with the convention and the meetings and things that are going on, but uh, the, the, the convention has... For some years now, going on about 15 years, has continually seen a decline in both memberships and baptisms. And not memberships because people are dying off, memberships because people are leaving the Southern Baptist Convention. And so, of course, there's all these talking heads on the internet that are talking about that. Well, how do we fix it? What do we do? What do we do this? And, and I, I read through a few of those websites, and I was looking at one not too long ago that was examining this, the decline in baptisms, the decline in membership. 2019-2020 hit a historic low in membership droppings in its 165-year history of this convention. And as they were, they were talking about what we need to do to engage culture more, what we need to do to, to reach more people and so on and so forth, I began to read through the comments, and one comment stuck out in my, in my eyes. This person wrote that, in his opinion, the issue was not due to sin and not due to we're not doing a good enough job spreading the gospel and everything else. He wrote, and I quote, the issue is that it's due to low birth rates among Southern Baptist families and the fact that demographics are changing around us as is the changing culture. Because I remember, like you, where Jesus said, you save more people by having babies and having them saved. You remember that in the, in the scripture? No, I remember Jesus saying, go. Go and share, teach, spread the gospel and baptize them and teach them to do all that I've commanded you to do. And the issue for us as a declining convention, and I'm just going to say this, and it might make some of you mad, but I'm going to say it anyway. If Jesus decides to do everything outside of the Southern Baptist Convention, he'll do it. So he doesn't need us. I'm sure he would love to bring us along with him. But if our, if our, if our hope for the convention and the decline in memberships and baptisms to say, well, we just need more Southern Baptists having babies so they can be part of their membership so we can baptize them. And we just need to make sure that the culture and the demographics around us isn't changing so that more people look like us. We've completely missed the point of kingdom. Because the issue is not those things. The issue is we've lost sight of the sufficiency of Jesus. We've lost sight of the better hope that he gives us. And we've put ourselves in bed with all kinds of things in this world that lead people to believe Jesus is not enough. I, I would really encourage you to go back and study the beginnings of what was called the moral majority in the late 70s, early 80s. And to see how that began solely as a political movement to get Jimmy Carter out of the White House. 
We've put ourselves in all kinds of positions where we've told the culture we sing the praises of Jesus and we say the praises of Jesus and we talk about the goodness of Jesus, but Jesus is not enough. This scripture is telling us that absolutely he's enough. He is the greatest hope that we have. Look again at 18 and 19. The one hand, a former commandment set aside because it was weak and useless. The law made nothing perfect. Again, not because it was the law's fault, because it was our fault. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it's built upon, and I know I'm kind of bouncing back and forth on you, but look again at verse 16. He talks about Jesus. He says he's become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. The Old Testament covenant, the Old Testament sacrificial system, the Old Testament priesthood never fully brought access to God because that priest always died and always had to be replaced. And there always had to be a hope that somebody would be worthy enough to walk into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and make an offering for you and for me and for anybody else who wanted to draw near to God. This Jesus has an indestructible life. This high priest faced death, yes, conquered death, rose again, and now is with the Father. Understand what's at stake here. Through the old covenant, sin was covered, but the heart of the person was not changed. Through the giving of the law, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, all that entails, sin became covered once a year, but the heart of the person wasn't changed. And we know, we know that laws against murder don't stop people from murdering. We know that laws against stealing don't stop people from stealing. <clears throat> we know that laws against speeding don't stop people from speeding. And now you're saying, well, he just doesn't want any laws. He wants chaos and anarchy. No, I don't want chaos and anarchy. I understand from a civil point of view, a community has to have laws that govern and try to uh, make a situation where it's safe for all who are involved. But understand, that's all it does. It's not until a heart is changed that the law has any effect. It's not until a heart is changed where a person doesn't want to commit murder, doesn't want to commit assault, doesn't want to steal, doesn't want to do these things. It's, not, it's only until that heart is changed that the law has any point to it whatsoever. And we understand that. I'll, 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 I'll speak for the speeding thing, right? Get a ticket. Two days later, boom. Because the law didn't change my heart in that aspect. Now, Gabriel changes it because Gabriel sits in the back seat and looks at the speedometer and looks at the speed limit sign and goes, Dad, you're doing 73 and that sign said 70. But our heart has to change. Our heart has to change. And so the old covenant didn't give us that. It, did, it didn't give us that opportunity. But the new covenant that's talked about in Jeremiah 31 that foreshadowed the coming of this Jesus who would change us, who would change our hearts, who would work on us not externally, but would work on us internally and begin to change us from within, that becomes the better hope. That becomes the better covenant. And again, look at the end of verse 19. In that better hope, we draw near to God.
in that Old Testament system, there was nothing about access to God. One person and one person alone had the, had the ability to enter it through the veil into the Holy of Holies, into the place in the temple where God's presence was. One person and one person alone. And what this Jesus has done in his sufficient nature is he has entered through the veil. He has gone into the presence of God. And if you think back or if you want to look back, if you've got your Bibles open there, back to where we were a couple weeks ago, verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. This is the way the author put it there. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever by the order of Melchizedek. See, the high priest of old was the only one that had access, and he didn't bring anybody in with him. But this great high priest... He has entered into the presence of God. And he has entered and he has prepared us an anchor of hope and he brings us fully into the presence of God. He tethers us to the presence of God. We are tied in, connected with him, united with him. It's why Paul would say in Colossians 3, you're now seated in the heavenlies. Physically, you might be seated in this place and know Jesus, but spiritually, you're already seated with him in the presence of God. And what the old system could not do, Jesus has done. It's not a great metaphor or example, but I thought about it this week. The chances of any of us ever being able to go into a governor's mansion or a White House or places like that and have a one-on-one with somebody in those positions and those authorities, uh, those chances are pretty slim. And so what we have is representatives. We have lobbyists. We have all these people that work within that system to gain us access, but it's not really true access. It's just them going on our behalf and, and us kind of being back here wondering, well, they're really fighting for me or not. But Jesus doesn't do that. He goes into the presence. He gains the access. And what chapter 6, verse 20 said was he was a forerunner on that behalf, which is a word that meant he not only went in, but he now brings us with him. He now brings us fully into the presence. He is sufficient. And he and his indestructible life serve as that guarantee. Look again, verses 20 through 22 as we begin to close. It says, This hope was introduced, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, meaning that all those that descended from Aaron, from that, that tribe of Levi, and God never swore about them. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, and he references Psalm 110 again, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor. Some of your translations may say the surety of a better covenant. So what's what's a guarantor? What does it mean to be surety? Um, I don't even know if they do this practice anymore. I may be showing age a little bit, but uh, I can remember in a time when people would co-sign loans. My daddy co-signed a loan for me on a car one time. And what co-signing that loan meant was if I ever messed up and stopped making the payments, 
the responsibility then went to him. He guaranteed the bank that no matter what happened, they were going to get their money. Jesus has become a guarantee for us, a guarantor. He has become the surety for us that says to us, no matter what happens, he is sufficient to give you and me full access to God. He and he alone are sufficient. He's sufficient in your good days and he's in your bad days. He's sufficient in your weaknesses and in your strength. He's sufficient in the depths of your reoccurring sin. And he's sufficient in the graces of his great grace. He is sufficient. He is the better hope. He is the better covenant. And he is all you and I need. Now, if we're going to be very honest, sometimes that doesn't sit well because it seems too simplistic, doesn't it? Things that are simple to us often don't seem like they're worth enough. But understand the worth that this truth is. It was worth his very life. It was worth his very life. The very blood that fell out of his body, the very last gasps of air that came from his lungs, the very last brain waves that went active in his brain. It was worth all of that for him to be the sufficient one for you and for me. A better hope, a better covenant, all we need. His name is Jesus. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.